Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can gather together as your people this day, ceasing from our work, gathering together with one another to encourage one another in the truth of who you are, sitting at your feet, hearing from your word how we might live the life you've called us to live. And as we look at this wonderful story of church history, I pray that the spark of the Reformation would spark a new reality in each and every one of our lives, that we would recognize more so than ever that the one who by faith is righteous shall live. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The scene is a tiny village a few miles outside of Eisleben, Germany. As you see this village of homes, they're really more huts, we would call them, hovels with mud and wattle walls with thatched roofs. With a, in the middle of the roof, enough room for the smoke to come out of the fire. You, you can almost reach across the alleyways, and the alleyways are, are dirt. And after a torrential rainstorm, there's mud. And Greta Schmidt is inside this hut. She looks 31. She lo- she's 31, but she looks 70. Life is hard in the Middle Ages in Germany, ladies and gentlemen. As she travels to her home, she's walking through this alleyway of mud that's mixed with garbage, animal dung, mud. And she comes into her house and she begins to cook her dinner for her family. She has three teeth. Her skin is dark from a thousand fires, cooking fires, and her baggy gown is dirty and torn. Tugging at her hem is little Michael. He's two. He's barefoot, wearing nothing but a woolen smock, and on his skin are open running sores. Five of Sarah's eight children have died in infancy. Two undernourished and feeble to withstand what today we would call common childhood diseases. There's only Mark, who's nine, and Hannah, who's seven, left with Michael. Death and disease have stalked Sarah's family. Her husband Hans is out in the field, working diligently in the fields, and the sun is now setting. And he can hear the bells of the church in Eisleben as they chime. So Hans straightens himself up, crosses himself like the good Catholic that he is. And he wraps and trudges home after a day's work. And the supper that awaits him is the same supper that she has fed him a thousand times before. A bowl of coarse gruel. No wonder Harry can scarcely muster the energy to go back out into the fields day after day after day. His hungry body is used up at 35. He has few years left. And each and every Sunday, the Schmitz trudged to Eisleben, past the timbered inns and shops, to their parish church of St. Anne's. Here is their weekly doorway into a whole other world, where they come to watch the miracle that brings the body and blood down upon the altar of Jesus Christ. The presence of God Almighty in the parish church fills Hans and Greta with awe and great fear. 
and gives them very little comfort. They don't understand the words of the service because it's in Latin and they don't speak Latin. If their God is powerful and mighty who is able to heal crippled human bodies and restore diseased limbs to health, it's not clear to Hans and Greta that this God regards them with any attitude but anger and scorn. Covering the walls of St. Anne's are garish paintings of the last judgment in which ravenous demons are dragging down into hell monks, warlords, kings, peasants. No one escapes hell, at at least in these paintings. Evidently, the human race is entirely rotten and no one escapes hell But mind you, Master Heinrich, the parish priest, gives you a tiny loophole. If you do do your very best to live a godly life, says Father Heinrich, the God will pour grace into your souls when you hear the Mass. And the grace will help you to still do more good works, therefore building up a treasury of virtue. Then on your dying day, if you're good enough, God may let you off the hook with no more than a few million years in purgatory, suspended between heaven and hell. So that begs the question, what does doing your very best mean? Well, Master Heinrich is very specific about that. You can buy some expensive candles and light it in the back chapel for the dead loved one. You know, and they're very expensive. Or you can buy an indulgence, because indulgence salesmen come to the church, to the village, regularly. Because in 1516, they were building a church in Rome, which we now know as St. Peter's Basilica. And they needed the funds to do it. So if you bought an indulgence, you or a loved one might get, for a certain contribution, a few million years off of purgatory. The more you gave, the more years you got off. Or, if you really, you know, could uh, do it, you could take a pilgrimage to Rome. Hans walks away. Can you imagine being a farmer in Germany? Hans trudged away from church each and every week, shaking his head. He can't put together two copper coins for the offering box, much less buying expensive candle or buying an indulgence, or taking a pilgrimage to Rome. It sounds to him as though heaven is for the wealthy and the devil can take the poor, which is most of the population. So Sunday after Sunday, Hans and Greta and the children trudge back to their village, depressed and hopeless, facing another week of labor, hunger, and pain. But on this Sunday, 70 miles northeast of Eisleben, in the town of Wittenberg, is a German Augustinian monk, professor at the university, who is pouring over the text that we just read in Romans. And I invite you to open up with me to that text. If you're visiting with us, you'll notice it's in the back of your bulletin. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther, 
studying Paul's, he's getting ready to prepare some lectures. And he reads verses 16 and 17, and he is wondering, how in the world can we sinful, wretched human beings be right with a holy and perfect God? And he has wrestled with this for years. And he comes upon these words while preparing his lecture. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he stops and he pauses. Oh, that's from Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Or the one who by faith is righteous shall live. And a light bulb goes off in his head. This is before light bulbs were even invented. My goodness! I don't have to do my best. I don't have to light a candle. I don't have to buy an indulgence. I don't have to take a pilgrimage. All I have to do to merit salvation is put my trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. This is good news. Martin Luther had been a monk now for several years. He was raised in Eisleben as a coal miner's son. His father worked very hard because Martin was a brilliant student and he wanted him to get the best education that he possibly could. So he pulled out all the stops and sent Martin to university because he was one of the brightest minds in all of Germany. Brilliant student, quick-witted, quick with his tongue, and was going to be a phenomenal lawyer. But one day, he was walking in the midst of a ferocious thunderstorm. And as he was walking in this thunderstorm, and the thunderclap struck to his left, and another thunderclap struck to his right, he didn't think he was going to make it. And he said, oh, St. Anne, save me. I'll become a monk. And he lived. So he lived into his promise, and he became a monk of the strictest order of their day, the Augustinian order. And he dedicated his life to becoming the most holy monk that you could possibly become, much to his father's dismay. His father was totally against this. Felt that he was wasting his life. And so Martin set out to be the best monk you possibly could. When he confessed his sins, he would confess his sins for six hours. That's just the sins of the day before. Okay? He would scrub the floors to where the other brothers would just get ticked at him because it was ridiculous. They would shine so much more than the others. Because he was repenting the whole time, rubbing in to the floor. He could never work hard enough, according to the theology that he read that the church was teaching him. How can you be right with such a holy God? When he celebrated his first communion, he lifted up the wine and he trembled with fear. Who am I to hold the body and blood of Christ? He thought. And he spilled it all over the altar. He knew what the church was teaching, but he lacked total peace. So his abbot and good friend, Abbot 
Johann Baustapitz, what a great name, huh? Johann Baustapitz was his friend and sent him on a pilgrimage. Martin, your soul needs to be cleansed. Go on a pilgrimage to Rome. So he did. You know what he found? Rome was corrupt. The clergy in Rome was rampant with prostitution and, and priests not living into their vows. The indulgent sales were over the top. The laddering steps, which were alleged to have been brought from Jerusalem, where Pontius Pilate pronounced the, the death of, of Jesus, were brought to Rome. And if you said the Hail Mary on every step walking up, you got to the top, you were given indulgence for a family member. He saw all these, and he just seemed hopeless. So he came back, and he said to Stalpitz, Rome is, is a cesspool. It's awful. And so Stalpitz said, okay, well then, let's send you to, let's send, you're brilliant, let's send you to become a, a professor. So he did, and he became, started to study theology. And it's in this study, preparing a lecture on Romans, the light bulb went off. And it became the battle cry of the Reformation that the just shall live by faith. That salvation is a gift of grace offered to the person by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It doesn't remain alone. Luther was real clear on that. Our works are very important. Because if you don't have works, you don't have faith. But the works don't save us. It's our trust in Jesus Christ alone which saves us, which is what Scripture was teaching. And he recognized that the church was not teaching this throughout Germany. So he decided to let the, the cardinal in Germany know that this was going on. And surely he would want to know and correct these abuses. So he nailed the 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517, which we celebrate on Tuesday, because on All Saints Day, everybody goes to church, right? Everybody's going to come to church on Wednesday, right? Right? Because everybody, they did, they, just, they, they, they flocked to church, and the, the church door was the community bulletin board. So everybody read it. But Luther had what some of his predecessors didn't. It was called the Gutenberg Printing Press. And within two weeks, these 95 theses were all over Germany. Can you imagine? Those guys must have been working hard printing all those copies because they read them. They go, oh my gosh, because they were really no fans of the church. All right. And they started to see we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So it started to spread like wildfire all over the place. And the church official was not a fan now, if you were proclaimed a heretic, you were burned at the stake in the Middle Ages. And he was going against a machine of maintenance that was just maintaining the religion for religious sake. I mean, you had these indulgent salesmen who got commission off their sales. Johann Tetzel would go through town yelling, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And these less educated German people would just, just give as much money as they could. Money they could use to feed their children. It was manipulative. And so Luther began to write tracts and booklets 
and all kinds of things, and the laity of the land started to believe in the gospel. This was good news to them. Even though the service at that time was still in Latin, they heard sermons that were gospel. So four years later, he was brought to a trial for heresy in Worms, Germany. It's, we, we, we would call it Worms in American. W-O-R-M-S. It's not Worms. It's Worms. And so if he knew if he was found guilty, he'd be burned at the stake. So he was brought before the king, the emperor of the German Empire, as well as all the court of the Roman Catholic Church, along with his supporters. And so under great pressure, he was being told that he was to recant. And he knew what was going to happen if he didn't. And so he came forward, and the lawyer for, for the Pope said, Are these your writings? He said, Well, some of them are. I haven't read all of those, but I think some of them are. He goes, Well, enough. Those that are your writings, do you recant? And Luther, under great pressure, said, Can I think about it? He goes, you got one day. You have one day. So that night, as he went to bed, he didn't sleep. He had his own personal Gethsemane, praying for the strength. You read in his journals that he literally wrestled with the devil. He came back the next day, again, under great pressure. Will you or will you not recant? He said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason... I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, and I will not, recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. As he walked out of the courtroom, the courtroom just, yay! All the laity just started to cheer for him. It was a great commotion and he turned to his good friend and he said, I'm finished. You've heard me teach. I discovered this year. He never said, here I stand, I can do no other. There really is no recording of that. Hollywood brought that in, apparently. But the reality is, it's implied in that, it's implied in that statement, isn't it? I cannot or will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So as he's going in the carriage in the middle of the night from Worms back to Wittenberg, he was kidnapped <laughs> by forces of the Saxony Prince Frederick. Frederick was an old guy who, if you ever get a chance to see the movie, it's played by, uh, I can't forget, it wasn't, huh? I can't remember the, the actor, but a famous actor. It's beautifully portrayed because Frederick was old but he liked his German monk. And he, and he loved him because he was preaching truth. And so he protected him. Hid him away. And while Luther was in hiding, he translated the entire New Testament into German. And you know what that did? People started to hear the whole New Testament in German, and it united the dialect of the German language over a generation. All of a sudden, you didn't have all these different dialects. They started to read the Bible together, and they started to speak very common German together. And not only that, it spread like wildfire. 
And so my friends, and what this matters to us is as Anglican Christian, Thomas Cranmer was sent over there by Henry VIII, and while he was there, hoping to lobby to, for Henry VIII's divorce so he could marry Anne Boleyn, Thomas Cranmer became a Christian. He recovered, he too understood that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. So when he went back, Cranmer did for the English church what Luther had done for the German church in the Bible in the sense that he translated the common day worship service into everyday English, actually above the street language English, which is absolute poetry in the Book of Common Prayer. He took scripture, and we pray scripture each and every time as we gather, whether we're doing morning prayer or whether we're doing communion, dear friends. And so, my friends, why does this ultimately matter? Why do we celebrate this each and every year? The Reformation was nothing more than an effort to recover the good news of the gospel for the medieval church, a gospel which had been obscured and in some cases outwardly denied. And the Reformation continues. While our relationship, you know, I thank God that we don't burn one another anymore, there are still points of the Reformation that are still valid for us Protestants. Because at the heart of the debate are these five questions. Number one, is Scripture alone the sole authority for doctrine and life? Two, is Christ alone, as our great mediator and advocate, sufficient for our salvation? Is God's grace alone, apart from any consideration of, of our works or worthiness or merit, our only means of rescue? Four, does God justify us on the basis of our faith alone, of faith in Christ's atoning work alone, on the basis of something that he sees inside of us? Finally, do we get any credit for our salvation, or does God get all the glory alone? To these questions, beginning with Luther, the Reformers recaptured the biblical gospel of the first century with these five solas, that's Latin for alone or only. Scriptures alone are authoritative. Christ alone saves. Grace alone intervenes. Faith alone is the means of our justification. And to God alone goes all the glory for my salvation and for yours. Now before we Protestants get up on our high horse and pound our chests on how doctrinally pure we are, just go to some churches around our area that call themselves Protestants. Don't, don't do it often, please, but you know. <laughs> Every now and then, just do a survey of the landscape. I encourage you. You know what you're going to find? I guarantee it. The content of a typical sermon is not from the scripture, but it's nothing more than motivational speeches for the most part. The shape of typical worship services is often determined not by scripture, but rather by cultural preferences or marketing strategies or by crowd-pleasing techniques that are developed by the entertainment industry over and above the word of God. Therefore, we're left with an American Christianity that truly is moralistic, therapeutic deism 
and a narcissistic spirituality that caters to the desires and felt needs of the masses rather than a transcendent truth that confronts, challenges, yet encourages and rescues fallen sinners like me. That word, as Luther wrote in his hymn, is above all earthly powers. So why does it matter? It matters for the same reasons it mattered in Jesus' day. It matters for the same reasons in 1517 on Halloween. That's my salvation, which is not just in the future, it's also in the present. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ alone, for what he's done for us upon the cross, when we place our trust in him and that atoning work alone, my future in heaven is secure. Because it's on him, not me. And it doesn't stop there. That it empowers me for my everyday life. That I have a joy, I have a hope, I have a future. How does that happen? It happens through His grace, which is His meritorious favor upon us. Through faith, that's not intellectual assent, ladies and gentlemen. Just because we believe, say we believe that doesn't make it so. It, it, it also, faith is also a directional change in our lives. It's an intellectual change, to, yes, that Jesus dies for me and washes away my sin, but it's also a directional change in the sense that it, my life begins to reflect this belief. Anything less than that does not save. And so this faith in Jesus Christ is in him alone. Acts 4.12, Peter speaking to the Jerusalem council, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And it's that belief alone that justifies us before a holy God. That's good news. And again, Luther realized that you could also translate that those who by faith are righteous shall live. <laughs> and, and to that, there's, there's several responses. You have those who are of the self-discovery crowd, I would call them. Actually, I borrow that from Tim Keller, my favorite preacher. You know, the there's that self-discovery crowd, and I have met more than a few in my time here in Cleveland who would profess to be Christians, and they would say, yeah, you know, but, but, but God can't ever love me. I got too much garbage in my life. He'll never forgive that, and therefore this Christian thing just doesn't work for me. I don't like to sing hymns. You know, I, I don't like to read the Bible. It has no interest in me. It, God would never take me in any way. So those types of folks just live licentiously, how they, way they want, right? It's interesting because they say God can't forgive me for what I've done. I would say if you're in that place, I want you to believe in Jesus Christ. You might say, well, Gene, I do believe in Jesus Christ. No, you don't. Because when a person believes in Jesus Christ, as long as you persist on your believing that all your past garbage can't be forgiven, you do not yet know or have experienced the power of the living God in Jesus Christ that's discovered in the Bible that Luther was trying to get us back to. Because he is the one who not only forgives, he also cleanses. He washes. 
and he offers more than forgiveness. He offers ongoing cleansing of my habits, of my thoughts, of my patterns. Because he doesn't just come for salvation, he comes for sanctification. He will change us. And it's all by his grace. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you are Mr. or Mrs. Self-Discovery right now, take that. He cleanses you in Jesus. That's what faith truly is. It's the understanding that God's ability to justify and to forgive and to cleanse through the power of his blood on the cross. That's the first person out there. Second person, there are those who are just good moral folk. They're moral conformists. I've been a good guy. I provided for my family. I've raised my children, the good wife says. I've supported them. I've even sent them to church. You know, the student says, I'm a good kid. Notice the operative word in all those sayings. What's the word that it's in every single one of those sentences? I, 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 I. So who saves in that worldview? I. Which leads to either an anxious life, because you can never live up to the standards that you've set for yourself, or leads to a prideful life, because you think you have lived up to the standards. Both of these moral views are really a refusal to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Which is, the true Christian believes that you are so sinful that only Jesus can be your Savior. Because the true Christian is the one who throughout his or her life, just like Luther, throws themselves down at the mercy of God and thanks God for it, recognizing that they are in need of his mercy every minute of every day. And Jesus gladly lays down his life for us. And therefore, the true Christian walks in that confidence that we are saved and therefore we have a relationship with him. We're just not forgiven of our sins. We're forgiven for a relationship with our adopted father. And because we're adopted in the family, the father never lets us go. Therefore, we have assurance of our salvation. You know, I, I have had five times in the last month, people that are in our congregation, friends, five times I've asked the question, have you come to a place where you're certain of you, that you're going to heaven? People have said to me, they come here more often than not, and they say, well, no one can be certain. Yes, you can. John 6, 47, hear the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. All right? Gene's not making this up. All right? You can be sure you have salvation. John writes later in his letter, 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. It's yours. Take it. Knowing that gives you confidence and it emboldens your walk for Jesus Christ. This is why the Reformation spread so quickly, not because of guys like me, because of people like you. Beautiful, wonderful tradesmen, businessmen, teachers, lawyers, doctors, moms, 
engineers, whatever vocation you are, the Reformation brought back the honor of vocation for the laity. This is not a special calling. I hate that. It's a different calling. That's all the ministry is. But it's not better than what you do. And I can't do it. I'm amazed at what you do. I go to some of these workplaces and I go, man, I can't do that. You know, I can't. There is no higher calling. Therefore, because we each and every one of us are priests of the living God, we walk into this community with great boldness in the ordinary Christian life. Do excellent work, gossiping the gospel as you go. And as we do that, it becomes contagious because I now recognize that I'm a missionary in this community. And every empty seat here today represents a friend, a neighbor, where you live, work, or play, or a family member, a husband, a wife, a grown child, a, a teenager who wouldn't come this morning for whatever reason, whoever it may be who lives in our area. God wants their rear end in that seat. All right? And we are the only ones who are going to get the gospel to them. Every single one of us. So therefore, dear friends, that's why it matters. <laughs> it's good news. And it applies to us today as it applied in Europe 500 years ago. Because our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's true salvation. That gives me assurance and a life of true purpose. That's why we celebrate. So this afternoon, in honor of Luther, go have a brat in a German lager. <laughs> celebrate! You know, people go, why are you so happy? Man, let me tell you, sit down. I'll buy you one. This is good news. Therefore, we're a people, as you see in our vision statement. This is our culture. Personal conversion. Make, discipling in community. Meeting the needs of our friends. Therefore, bringing reformation. May it be so. And we do that by making disciples, following Christ together. Every single one of us matters. Thank you, Dr. Luther, for risking your life standing for the truth so that we might walk in this truth in 2017 as you did in 1517. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this life you've given us, for it is truly living, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. <laughs> it's in the hopes of heaven outstretch any hope of political change in our culture or or revolution or whatever we might think might be best for us. Lord, this is good news that we can follow you in this way. That we're your family because of what you have done for us, Jesus Christ. And as we look and we ponder our justification this week, may we never forget this good news is for us and for those around us that we rub shoulders with. And we pray, Lord, as we do so, that we would spark a modern reformation in our day for your honor and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.